Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We are thinking about giving kids experiences that are helping them learn about themselves and also tap into their own internal motivation to want to eat. And when we think about enjoyment and we think about sensory, we can give kids so many experiences that first of all, they feel really good. And second of all, we can think about giving kids experiences that just fire up their curiosity. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. Sensory enjoyment, sensory processing, sensory challenges. What emotions or feelings do these terms around the word sensory conjure up for you as you're introducing new foods to your baby? Well, my guest today knows a lot about sensory stuff. That's my term, not her term. Her name is Karen Dilfer. Karen is an occupational therapist. She's a feeding specialist, and she helps children who have motor, sensory, and mealtime challenges. Karen's based in the Chicago area. She's a founding member of the Chicago Feeding Group. She's neurodevelopment treatment trained, NDT trained, and she has some postgraduate education in sensory integration. So Karen, you might recognize her name because we've talked about her a number of times in the episodes with Marsha Dunn-Klein. So Karen works with Marsha Dunn-Klein as well as Stephanie Cohen, another guest who's been on the podcast before a number of times. They collaborate, they teach together, and they teach about using the sensory aspects of food. And so in therapy, they work with children and babies who have sensory difficulties. But today we're going to be talking about building sensory enjoyment at mealtimes. So with no further ado, here is Karen Dilfer talking about how to build sensory enjoyment at mealtimes with your baby. Hi there. How are you? I am wonderful. I'm so glad it's taken us a while to get this interview together. I feel like I've been hounding you for a year, but I am so excited to chat with you today. 
about building sensory enjoyment and talking about mealtimes and babies. But before we get started, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? What drew you to helping children who have feeding challenges? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. I just want to say that I am a person who has always loved eating. So sometimes I'll joke with my friends that eating is both a personal and a professional interest. So I remember when I was in graduate school and I was studying to be an occupational therapist, I was always just drawn to the content that had to do with food. In part because I love eating, food has always been a big part of my life. And I kind of got fascinated by the concept of what happens if a person is struggling to eat. What's the experience like for that person? What's the experience like for the parents of that child? In part because eating is such a central part to being a person. There's this great James Beard quote I always think about, and it says that food is the universal human experience. And if you can't eat or you struggle to eat or you enjoy eating, how does that really influence your participation in connecting with other people, having relationships, and maybe even maybe even being a person, right? So I was always just really interested in food and eating. And I had been practicing as an occupational therapist for about five years. And the clinic where I was working would have these wonderful continuing education seminars. And it just so happened that Marsha Dunn-Klein came to our practice and was giving her talk about um, tube feeding with love. And after just listening to Marsha and being a part of that conference for two days, I was like, this is it. Like, this is everything I want to do as a professional. I was just so drawn to her work and really drawn to the message and how she got at the, the idea that eating was not just about food. Eating was about love and connection and relationships. And that resonated with me at a deep, 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 deep level. So the funny thing was that when Marsha was visiting Chicago, she was telling me about how her son, who was a little bit younger than I am, who is also a physical therapist, um, had just completed a fellowship with the Denver Broncos. And she started telling me that, you know, Karen, occupational therapists need to have fellowships too. So we can have these advanced clinical experiences. So more therapists can learn these, um, you know, specialty areas of practice. And I said, Marsha, like, this is amazing. Like, I'm your person. I would like love to learn more about the way that you think about feeding kids and supporting families. And then Marsha was really sweet and very nice. And she said, you know, Karen, it's so nice that you're interested in this, but really you live in the wrong part of the country. And, um, you know, they were kind of looking for someone to do this fellowship who was like kind of the new graduate. And I had been practicing for a number of years. So anyway, time passed and I was pretty persistent in making phone calls and writing emails. And roughly a year later, I found myself in Tucson, Arizona, and I worked with Marsha at her clinic for about a year. And it was an amazing experience and that I really learned what it looked like to support parents and kids and to support their relationship as kids learned to love eating. That's wonderful. My next question was going to be like, tell me more about how you do Marsha, but I never heard that backstory. I also, every time I go to Tucson, I just call her and like, can I come over and hang out and just talk to you? You're one of my favorite persons in the entire world. I think she's lovely. She's been so generous with her time. She's been on our podcast a ton. And I, I really love how gracious she's been towards other people in the feeding world. Not she is an OT. She is known as an OT, but also SLPs and other dietitians and really acknowledging that, as you said, it's not just about food. Meals are about love and connection and relationships. And that's such a unique perspective from a therapist standpoint, because especially as dietitians, like no food is all about calories and milligrams. Like, no, it's not. It's about love, connection and relationships. 
And I love that Marsha's kind of set that tone and train at this point, you know, so many different practitioners, but I always know that you and Stephanie Cohen, who's been on our podcast as well, and Marsha, you guys work together with the Get Permission Institute sharing, you know, if you don't mind, share, could you tell us more about the work you do with Marsha and Stephanie and Get Permission Institute? Like what, what is about their approach that was appealing enough to you where you're like, I'm going to go to Tucson for a year and, and learn to work with Marsha. I know. I, it was funny. I always tell people, you know, I packed up all my possessions and I put them in my small city car and I recruited a friend and we drove across the country and I essentially moved to Arizona. And when I moved there, I wasn't sure if I was going to live there forever, if I was just going to live there for a short amount of time. But, you know, it ended up being a great experience and something I will never, never, never regret. You know, part of the reason that I was so compelled to move was because I felt like there was you know, the emotional aspects of eating are so important. And I think that that is something that I've grown up with and something I've always sort of known in my gut for my whole life. You know, like I can tell you stories about like when I was a little girl and I'd go over to my grandma's house and like, we'd make cookies together. And it was like this really fun thing. And it was like so fun to be with her and to make these delicious cookies. And I mean, she's passed away a number of years ago, but to this day, like my mom will make the cookies at Christmas and like we eat them and they're so special, you know? So I think that there's a big emotional part of eating for a lot of people. And I think if we neglect that in our work with our clients, we're, we're fooling ourselves. And I also think you keep mentioning like the emotional aspects of eating. As a dietitian, when you hear those terms, you immediately think eating disorder, eating disorder. Those are the dietitians who go and work in eating disorders. And yet only a small percentage of people who eat have an eating disorder or disordered eating. And yet all people eat and all people have emotions. So there's this whole swath of people, I feel, especially from the nutrition standpoint, is all I can speak from. Clinicians are ignoring that emotional side. Oh, I don't work in eating disorders. Oh, so you don't work with emotions? Like when we work with babies, it's all about the interpersonal and sharing love and connection and relationships so that then the toddler wants to cook with the mom and the grandma is making cookies with the school age. Like we lay these foundations in infancy. And I feel like at least in my profession too often, we just, well, I'm not an eating disorder dietitian, so I don't speak about emotions. So I love that you, Marsha, Stephanie, you guys are always kind of drawing back the emotional aspects of eating. And that's so important. And I love that story of making cookies with your grandmother, because I think everyone has some aspect of food that's emotional, good emotions, bad emotions, neutral emotions, whatever the case may be, we do need to address that emotion is involved in mealtime. Yeah. And I mean, I'm just going to say, I'm a clinician, I'm an occupational therapist, People come to see me because their child is not eating or is not eating well or like something is going wrong. And, you know, parents are really upset when they come in and for good reason, because we all kind of know that, you know, a parent feels responsible for feeding their child. And also, I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say that, you know, parents love their child by nourishing them with food, right? We want to see our kids eat. We want to see our kids grow. And so when that process isn't playing out in a way that seems typical, of course, people are really, really upset. And so, again, I think that that identifying that, having skills as a clinician to address that and then talk about how our work together in therapy can begin to, I mean, help a child eat, but also help a parent's emotional experience and connecting with their child. Like, it's so important. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you 
who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply all night long. I know you have completed postgraduate education in sensory integration. Could you tell us a little bit about this idea of sensory enjoyment? And then what types of children do you see in your clinical practice who are having sensory challenges? Yeah. So I'm so glad that you asked me about sensory stuff, because I want to say, I feel like there's a lot of information out there. And I also feel like it's a topic that's just a little, I don't know, like it's not always like really clear. Exactly. Which is why it makes for very interesting Instagram content. Parents, like they love the word sensory because not, it's not fully understood. And we were having a conversation before the interview that like, there's so many different interpretations, depending, you know, what side you're coming from, what area of expertise you're coming from, just the choice of the use of words. I think it kind of opens up this Pandora's box. So I guess I'm asking, you know, what does it mean to you in your own occupational therapy feeding practice? Yeah. So if we start from like the perspective from 40,000 feet, what I would tell you is that people everywhere process sensation, and this should not be a novel idea, right? Like maybe today you got up and it was a little cold where you live because it's a little cold in Chicago today. It feels like fall. And I thought, oh, wow, it feels cold here. I'm going to put on a sweater. And I found my favorite fuzzy sweater. And part of the reason I picked it is because I know when I put it on, I like the way that it feels on my skin, right? It's soft. It's kind of cuddly. It will keep me warm on the cold day. So there was a sensory choice in me choosing that shirt, right? And so the idea of sensory processing is that sensations are coming into our bodies through different channels, right? With my sweater example, it's the sensation of the sweater is coming to me through my skin. My nervous system is transmitting that information to my brain. My brain is saying, oh, you know, you're wearing the fuzzy sweater. You like that. And there's, there's a response, right? And in my case, the response is enjoyment. This feels good. I'm glad I put this on. We can think about sensory processing in relation to things like motor skills, right? If you are rock climbing, for example, you know, because that's an activity that's kind of a challenging motor activity that, you know, kids or grownups might do, you might feel the little rock climbing hold on the wall and your body might respond in a certain way, maybe by, you know, extending your knee to stand up on that hold to climb up the wall, right? So sensory processing is something that we all do. We feel sensations, they go to our brains, our brains helps us make sense of the sensation, and then we respond. And I'm just going to say that there's like a bell curve of what we might consider like typical responses, right? The response, me being like, oh, I like this sweater. It feels good. You know, that's kind of like a typical response. But if you think about a sensation that's maybe, I don't know, less preferred or different, you might have like a response that's too big or maybe a response that doesn't seem big enough. For example, maybe you put on a fuzzy sweater and you don't really like like wool because it's like itchy and scratchy. And so you put the sweater on and then all of a sudden you cannot tolerate. You can't think, you can't function. You're like scratching yourself. You're like, how do I, how do I take it off? Do I have a different sweater, right? That might be a indicative of a response of someone who has difficulty processing what I'm going to call tactile information or that specific tactile information, right? And I think the thing that like trips us up is, is providers and as people 
is that everyone's sensory systems and everyone's sensory preferences are different. Yeah. Like who gets to say, I, you know, the, the big emotion stuff, like, I don't know, I have seven kids, so I see lots of different ranges of emotion and you kind of get an idea of what a baseline is and like, oh, that's not typical. Cause I've seen this before, but when it's your first kid, you have no clue, like who's determining what a big response is. And then you know, how do we quantify this for a clinical setting? Like I, I see where a lot of the challenges come in because a lot of this is subjective observation. Totally. And I mean, I think the thing that's tricky is like, sometimes you're seeing someone have a big response and you're like, is that normal? Is that okay? Should I be worried? You know, it, it's funny when I think about like my sweater example, I love wool sweaters, but my mom will not tolerate them. So like one year for Christmas, I bought her a wool sweater and I don't think I realized like how much she hated it. And um, until she puts it on, she's like, I can't do it. I can't do it, you know? And so I think that we see like a similar response in kids with eating, right? Like, I mean, you've seen that you give your little one applesauce on the tray and all of a sudden, like the fingers are up, maybe there are tears or throwing the spoon, like something about that sensation, either the way that it feels or the way that it looks or smells like is not working for that child in that moment. Everybody is different, right? And everybody's preferences are different. Everyone's taste preferences are different. Everyone's you know, preferences for being messy is different, right? Like, you know, like some people love to be messy and some people are like, there is no way I am touching anything that's smushy or gross, right? So I think that, you know, we are right to say that there is a wide range of what we might consider normal or typical. I think the thing that begins to be a problem for folks is when these sensory preferences of kids just like totally and completely prevent them from having eating experiences, right? Exactly. The parent who's constantly wiping the baby's mouth with a wet wipe every time that there's a dribble of food or constantly wiping them down when they touch the food, at which point you know, that I would not want to learn how to eat if I was constantly being attacked by a person with a washcloth or a wet wipe. Yeah, because that doesn't feel good. I mean, and most kids don't like that. Some might be OK with it, but, but a lot of them don't. To go back to your question, do we need to be worried if kids don't like certain things? No. But what I am going to say is I think that in a responsive, attuned parent, that parent realizes, oh, my child does not like this, doesn't like this flavor, doesn't like this group of textures, right? Whatever it is. And that parent is able to, first of all, identify it. And then second of all, think about what does my child enjoy and how can I start from there? And I think that's the magic that we don't often talk about in our, our Instagram feeding world. And I love that before the episode, you did acknowledge that you spend as little time on Instagram as possible, which I appreciate that because I think sometimes parents come like, hey, I think my child has a sensory processing disorder. It's like, why do you think that? Oh, because they don't always like touching the meat in the bowl. Oh, so they're just being a baby. Again, I'm not making light of the situation. I want to talk about what real sensory challenges are. But I think we live in this era where we're very quick to over pathologize what's happening at mealtime when your baby doesn't know how to eat yet. We need to give them as you said, the 40,000 foot view back up and look at the weaning period is an opportunity for your child to learn how to use food to eventually nourish themselves. But at the same time, lots of other things are going on, participating in family mealtimes, enjoying the way they taste, trying new things. It's not just about how many you know calories or milligrams of iron gets into the baby. And I know in from the nutrition world, that's sometimes it, that's hard to break. I'm a college nutrition professor. We teach nutrition throughout the life cycle. And sometimes parents are like, well, I'm just so worried about how much the baby's eating. Like that, that's not the point here. Your baby does not yet know how to use food to provide their body with nutrition. Let's give them the opportunity to practice and experience that. So could you maybe share what sensory difficulties look like in an infant who's transitioning to solid foods? Like the typical versus non-typical 
if you're comfortable saying that without freaking parents out, like what is typical and then what's not? Yeah. So what I want to say is there is a wide range of responses. And I think as someone who's fed a lot, a lot of babies over the years, sometimes you offer a child an experience and they just seem to get it. Like it seems to make sense. It's easy. You know, like you, you put the puree on the little, um, the dipper taster spoon and the child picks up the spoon, they look at it and they put it in their mouth and they go, oh, can I have some more? Right. And that's, that would be like an easy experience. Or maybe, you know, you're someone who's really into baby like weaning. Your baby is, is beginning to eat, you know, taste solids. You give your baby like a big chunk of a hard carrot and your baby can pick it up and they kind of put it in their mouth and they like teeth on it a little bit, right? It's not like scary from a motor perspective. They can't get a bite off, but they're just interested. They're exploring. There's flavor. There's wetness. Maybe there's coldness. And the baby gets to say, oh yeah, that's good. So I think those would be examples of things that just kind of like feel easy and make sense where a child sees something, they initiate it on their own, they're exploring, they have a response that maybe it's positive, maybe it's neutral. In some situations, it's even negative, right? I mean, you will all have seen those videos on the internet of like babies, like picking up like lemons, or I just saw one of a baby eating a kiwi. And the oh yeah, that was huge. His reactions, it's great. I mean, they're all over the board. That child is so invested in the kiwi. But the thing is that kid has a big response, but he keeps going back to it. Like he's, he's exploring. And so I think when we give kids opportunities to explore sensory input, specifically taste, smells, and textures, they begin to learn the way that their bodies work. They begin the way that their mouth works. And like, those are the foundational experiences that help them learn to eat. I think the thing that sometimes like trips us up is um, if a baby isn't doing a lot of initiating. Or if a baby doesn't seem to really enjoy it, I think that sometimes parents get worried and then maybe parents get a little pushy and saying like, but, but I see that you're supposed to be doing this. So I'm going to try to make you do it, even though maybe you're not quite ready or this experience isn't quite right. And I think that's where we get into some um, tricky places. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. Besides baby led weaning, what other type of podcasts do you like to listen to? Well, if you're into true crime and you also dig traveling, I want to tell you about a new podcast you are going to love. The new podcast is called Slaycation, and it's a darkly humorous look at murders and mysterious deaths that all take place on vacation. So the show is hosted by a true crime fanatic and her comedy writer husband, and he has a TV producing partner. So Slaycation brings a totally unique perspective to chilling, thrilling, what the heck stories of vacations gone horribly wrong from the twisted tale of Harold and Tony Henthorne, whose romantic anniversary in the Rocky Mountains ended with one of them falling off a cliff, to Angelica and Vincent, their two recently engaged lovebirds, whose Hudson Valley kayaking adventure ended up underwater. Every episode of Slaycation will have you asking, accident or murder? But it's not just the stories that will intrigue you. I think you're going to love the discussion between the longtime married couple and the business partners. They also happen to be an Emmy-nominated TV producer's Every episode of Slaycation also includes humor and takeaway and travel tips that are going to keep your next family vacation from becoming your last. So if you're ready to pack your body bags, Slaycation is available on all major podcast platforms. Search for Slaycation on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So how do sensory challenges impair the ability for babies to learn to eat or self-eat? Because yes, it is about mealtime enjoyment and the emotional connections. 
But at the end of the day, your child needs to stop getting as much nutrition from milk and needs to get more from food. Like we're working along this continuum where around one year of age, most of baby's nutrition can be coming from food. But if they never want to touch the food and we're still 100% infant milk at one year of age, that becomes a health, a nutrition, a development problem. So how can sensory challenges, how do you see them impairing abilities for babies learning how to eat? Yeah, I think there are a couple big things that we see over and over again. I think one thing that we see is some kids are just really sensitive on their hands and they don't want to touch wet things or they don't want to touch messy things. And so these experiences of like exploring with your hands and bringing them to your mouth, like maybe those experiences don't happen or they don't happen a lot, right? So that that's one thing. Another thing is there are some kids who just have really, really strong reactions to certain types of food or sensations that are brought to their mouth. I can tell you stories about babies I've met who do not like purees, right? And that can be a really hard thing because I think there are a lot of parents out there who go, oh, I don't want to give my baby large pieces. I'm yeah, they think like- it's a stepping stone. Like I can't get to soft finger foods if we haven't quote unquote passed purees. Yeah, and if a baby is not into purees or you know they're turning away, they're refusing, they're crying whenever purees are offered, I think that can be really hard for parents. On the flip side, there are babies that love purees. And then as soon as you give them a piece or you give them something with lumps, they're just like, oh my gosh, I can't do this. And again, you're seeing that really big response And the big response doesn't seem commensurate with the experience that was offered. We have parents whose babies, they're just starting solid foods. And like a lot of neurotypical infants, they'll just not be super interested in food from the get-go. And you say, it's because they don't know what to do with it yet. So if they don't dig right in with their hands, the parents will worry. Or I see them like literally just diagnosing their own babies. Oh, Katie, I have a super sensory baby. Or my baby has a sensory processing disorder. doesn't like touching food. What risk is there in ascribing these terms to a baby in the absence of a diagnosis from a credentialed feeding professional? I think the big thing is I think that sometimes parents are like, oh, my baby doesn't like this. And they stop offering experiences. And um, that's kind of a hard place to be because we know that kids learn through opportunities, right? And so when parents change the opportunities or limit the opportunities, you know, kids might be missing out on things that that could be okay, Right. I really kind of think that the place to start is, can we figure out what a child likes? Can we figure out what a child enjoys? Can we figure out what a child's sensory preferences might be? And let's start from there. Rather than saying, oh, you know, you don't like purees. We're going to figure out how to get you to eat purees. You know, no, no, no. Oh, you really like crunchy crackers. We can start from there. You know, there's, there's lots of ways that we can help you enjoy the crunchy sensory food group. And then, you know, maybe um, with lots of time and practice and variation, we help you learn that you could dip your crackers in a puree or in a spread, maybe something that's not quite so wet, right? So we're we're figuring out those things that a child likes. And I'm just going to say that, I mean, you know, as someone, I'm a pretty like typical eater. Maybe, Maybe I'm a little bit of an enthusiastic eater, but I think this idea of us as people gravitating towards foods because we enjoy the sensation, like, I think that makes sense to us on so many levels. And I think that, you know, part of the reason that maybe we don't go there as professionals is because we kind of forget that infants are people too, you know, they have preferences and it's totally, completely okay and normal. I love that because you're kind of walking a fine line sometimes, right? You don't want to pressure the child. It is not our job to make the child eat, right? The child, we're talking about Ellen Satter's division of responsibility and feeding theory that's ultimately up to the child if they are going to eat, how much they're going to eat. That's their job. 
However, as the parents, because our job is to be in charge of what and when and where they eat, the what, if you give up after one exposure because you think, oh, they don't like it, you're limiting those opportunities. And I love that you said that children learn from the opportunities. And when we as parents change the opportunities or limit the opportunities, we can be affecting the child's ability to recognize their own full potential with that food. Like broccoli, kid hates broccoli. We're never going to do broccoli again unless it's slathered in nacho cheese. Well, that's not necessarily true. Maybe they they don't know what to do with broccoli yet, or it was too cold that day. And we don't want you to have to go and make broccoli 5,000 different ways, but it's not a one and done situation. So could you talk a little bit more about exposures and how we navigate that fine line to like not making you eat broccoli, but also making sure you see broccoli enough so you have the opportunity to maybe someday like and accept it? Yeah. So, I mean, again, I, I think the idea of figuring out what a child likes in starting there is always, always a safe idea. I just want to say this for a minute. This is backing up for a minute. As you know, you shared, you know, Ellen Satter's division of responsibility. And I think that sometimes as grownups, professionals or parents, we think it's our job is like the grownup in the room to get kids to eat. And I want to say that the longer I do this job, the more I am convinced that eating is a personal experience and it is an internally motivated experience. So people call me up when something's not going right with their little one. But almost always what I tell them is, I will not be the person to get your child to eat. I will not force your child to do things they're not ready to do. What we will do is we will partner together to help your child tap into their own internal motivation, right? And when we think about internal motivation and eating, and again, you might think about yourself, you probably eat because you're responding to hunger cues. You probably eat because it looks good and it tastes good. Or you might be eating because like you're with other people and there are social aspects that make it interesting, right? So I think that, you know, we are thinking about giving kids experiences that are helping them learn about themselves and also tap into their own internal motivation to want to eat. And when we think about enjoyment and we think about sensory, we can give kids so many experiences that first of all, they feel really good. And second of all, we can think about giving kids experiences that just fire up their curiosity, right? One of the most powerful things that parents can do with their young children is to eat with them. And, you know, parents can be eating something totally and completely different. You know, they're eating like fried chicken and broccolis or um, burritos and Caesar salad, right? Like you wouldn't give those foods to like a, a small infant. But almost always what happens is when parents get into the habit of bringing their young children to the table, Kids watch parents eat and kids learn the sensory aspects of what eating looks like, right? They learn that the visual aspect, oh, broccolis are green. They experience the smells, right? They might even be so excited that they reach out and they're trying to like grab the broccoli off of mom's plate, right? And so there's a tactile experience. So I think that, you know, again, you use the word exposure, right? We're exposing kids to food. I just want to say that word always feels like a little like clinical to me. It's kind of like, can we include kids in our normal eating routines? And can we help kids engage in the process of sensory learning so that they can, again, participate in the relationship, right? Because if you're eating at the table with mom and mom is your most favorite person in the world, of course, you're going to want to be there, right? There's a relational aspect and there's a sensory aspect. And I'm just going to say there's also a safety aspect, because again, when kids are there with their parents and they feel safe and they feel connected, it gives them the freedom to explore. It gives them the freedom to want to have those opportunities with sensation. 
And ultimately, those are the experiences that help kids learn and grow and maybe become a little bit adventurous with um, with eating. I can so tell that you've trained with Marsha Dunkley because you have the nicest way of redirecting language. Like, I don't love the word exposure. Let's talk about experiences. One time I was talking about a mom who was excessively micromanaging at the mealtime and Marsha's like, don't say that. Say that she's excessively cheerleading. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's such a nicer word. So I appreciate your attention to detail in language. And I love that you tied it back to the safety aspect because the baby wants to do what you're doing and they might not be there yet with the burritos and the Caesar salad, but they feel safe knowing that they're doing something that you're doing. And I'm going to start using the word experience more than exposure. So thank you for that, Karen. I also like opportunity. Opportunity is my other favorite word these days, you know? I love opportunity. Yeah. Okay. So for parents, let's go back to like the ones who are listening because they're like, I think my baby has a sensory challenge. What they are experiencing and their reaction is is not typical. It is big. I don't think this is quote unquote normal, even though that's a terrible word. What do you suggest for that parent? What should they do? Where should they go if they think their child would benefit from an opportunity with an occupational therapist who specializes in infant feeding? Yes. So what I want to tell you is that there are lots of professionals in the world who can help you. I just happen to be an occupational therapist who's had a lot, a lot, a lot of really good training. But there are speech language pathologists in the world who have a lot of good training. There are even some dietitians in the world who have a lot of good training in this area. So I think the most important thing is to find someone in your area who has expertise and who loves supporting families and kids who struggle with this. And again, it doesn't have to be an OT. It doesn't have to be an SLP. But when you start asking around, you will find that person in your area um, who everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's the person you need to see. And I'm just going to say that, you know, if you as a parent are feeling worried, if you have this gut instinct that something is not right, make the call. Because I get those phone calls. And almost always what happens is we have a conversation about what doesn't seem to be right. We meet together. We help the infant have an eating experience together. And um, I'll just say, okay, oh, it looks like they like, like they really are enjoying this. Can we give them some more? Or let's change the way that we're offering this. Let's put it on a spoon or in the in the silicone feeder, right? And so almost always what happens is with, you know, maybe one visit or two visits, therapists can identify what's happening and can give parents little modifications to make it feel better. And, you know, almost always what happens is parents go, oh, this makes so much sense, or I feel so much more confident. And it's so important to me that parents feel confident as they're feeding their kids, because feeding children can be really hard. And again, when kids have big responses, like it can be confusing. So absolutely, if you're a parent and you're listening to this and you are uncertain, call up that person in your area who can help you. And just know that, you know, oftentimes, you know, that person can help you make changes um, in a relatively short amount of time. Hey, we're going to take a quick break, but I'll be right back. Hi, friends. Are you looking for a storytime podcast with your littles? Something that has some great storytelling and maybe some conversation about it? Look no further. With Storytime with Philip and Mommy, my little guy Philip and I sit down every single day and read a story together. And we, of course, want you to join us. Grab your copy of the book, sit down, let's read it, and let's talk about it. We'll learn new words, we'll learn new ideas, and then we'll learn how we can use those stories in our lives. It's a lot of fun. Classics like Little Golden Books or Bernstein Bears, all the way up through the newest phenomenons like Bluey. 
We talk about them and we have a lot of laughs. It's a great time and we hope that you can come and join us. So please look for us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Storytime with Philip and Mommy. Thanks so much. We'll see you there. And I love that reminder that if you quote unquote, go to a feeding therapist, it's not a lifelong diagnosis. It is not something you're going to have to do forever. More often than not, a well-trained therapist is going, they're working their way out of a job. If I do my job, you don't come back to see me because I'm going to give you the toolkit to deal with whatever it is you're going through right now. And that in as few as even just a couple of sessions, a lot of, we're not fixing the problems, but we're helping parents gain coping strategies to help their child progress towards becoming an independent eater. I'm also just going to say, if I can shamelessly plug myself for a moment, at um, the Get Permission Institute, we are having a class for parents to help parents introduce solids to their infant. Um, This is a new offering. And so if you go to Get Permission Institute, you will be able to find this class. And um, we're hoping that it can be something that you can just access online and watch it. And it'll give you lots of good information lots of videos about helping your baby transition to solids if maybe it seems tricky or hard. I love that. Where do they go to learn more about Get Permission Institute? Yeah. So the URL for Get Permission Institute is getpermissioninstitute.com. And then how about for social media? Our handle is Get Permission Institute. And if you're a parent and you're looking for Get Permission Institute and you click on our Instagram, what you'll notice is that it's a little grasshopper. That's our logo. So I will link to that episode where she gave the history of the Get Permission Institute and her approach and involving children in mealtime at love. I, I feel like you're this lovely extension of Marsha. Just just your language. I could listen to you talk all day long. I know you said you like to do like eight hour long webinars. So I'm definitely interested in learning more from you. I appreciate that you guys also do continuing education opportunities for other professionals. Like what you've learned from your experience, what Marsha has learned from her experiences, it's so helpful to other younger people coming up in the fields of and you mentioned it, SLPs, occupational therapists, registered dietitians, there's not one credential professional who's fit to deal with the entirety of feeding because it is so multifaceted. It does involve so many different parts of the body and the brain. So I think it's important that we're all working together. And I appreciate that you guys do continuing education. I know you're offering continuing education credits for registered dietitians as well, which is a wonderful opportunity because I would argue that we don't have as many advanced training opportunities as occupational therapists and SLPs do. So the work that Get Permission Institute is doing is really important for my profession as well. So thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, we just love feeding kids. I think one of the things that happens too sometimes is is maybe like kids have strong preferences or they're struggling. As I think that sometimes parents forget to um, know that as they're offering foods to their baby, they're getting to know their baby as a person, you know? Oh, my baby really likes savory tastes. I can think of one little girl I worked with um, years ago and like there were a lot of things she didn't like because she had a variety of medical complications and things weren't easy for her. But we offered her um, the sauce to butter chicken like we were eating Indian food and she just like went crazy like it was so good, you know, and it was it tasted so good to her and it was so fun to us to watch her experience that enjoyment. And then we could share it together, you know, because we're eating Indian food for lunch, too. And, you know, to all the parents listening, I just want to tell you that, you know, look for the things your baby loves and celebrate those things because it can be so easy to forget that when maybe things feel hard or you as a parent are just feeling kind of worried. 
Well, thank you so much for your time and all of your tips and your advice, Karen. I really appreciate it. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks so much for having me on. I just love your podcast. It's so fun to talk with you today. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Kara Dilfer from Get Permission Institute. I just love the way she talks. I was telling her after, like, I can tell you've trained with Marcia Dunklein. You were like an extension. She's like, oh my gosh, I used to like voice record her because just the way she describes and connects with families is so powerful. And Karen is herself a very accomplished feeding therapist. I'm going to link to her resources, but including the classes that she was talking about through Get Permission Institute. I also have to say, I really appreciate her constructive feedback. My husband tells me I'm bad at receiving constructive feedback. I was like, no, I just don't get a lot of it. And maybe yours is not that constructive, but Karen's, I like how she pointed out the use of the word exposure feels pretty clinical, whereas experience or opportunity might be more inviting to parents. So I'm going to start using the words experience and opportunity more and try to use the word exposure less. So I really appreciated just having the conversation with her. And I hope that you appreciate it. If you're worried about some of the quote unquote sensory stuff pertaining to your baby. And if there truly is a problem or you believe that there is a problem that you also learned a little bit more about how you can possibly get in touch with a feeding therapist who is qualified to help you with your baby. So all of the show notes and resources will be linked for this episode at blwpodcast.com forward slash 378. We're online at blwpodcast.com. And thank you to our sponsors at Airwave Media. If you like podcasts that feature food and science and using your brain, check out some of the podcasts from Airwave Media. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. The world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment.